Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25, and we will be looking at Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, the parable of the talents, Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, beginning in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who had also, he also who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So over the last few months, we've realized that Jesus has been sitting on the Mount of Olives answering a question that had been brought to him in private by the 12 disciples. 
And as he's been answering this question that was posed to him in verse 3 of chapter 24, he has touched upon a number of what we would call eschatological, a fancy word that means end times events. And over the last few months, couple of months, we have been putting together the New Testament witness on how these things are all going to work out. And we have noted this order. Jesus has revealed what life will be like for his people in the days and in the times leading up to the end of the age. The days that we currently find ourselves living in right now. The days of wars and rumors of wars. The days of affliction at the hands of peoples and nations who hate Jesus and who hate everything he is and everything he stands for. They also hate anyone who reflects his holiness and who lets their light shine in and to a dark, this dark and fallen world. We live in the days of the ever-present, unceasing, persistent, pervasive, and far-reaching efforts of false prophets and false teachers who rise up and use every means at their disposal to lead people away from the truth of Jesus Christ. And they'll do this in two ways. They'll do this by professing Christ and being a part of the visible church, all the while being an agent of the enemy in the church, seeking to destroy it from the inside. And they'll also do this by inspiring and leading those on the outside to attack the church in the culture. And even as, Jesus told us, these relentless external cultural assaults and internal ambushes at the hands of those devoid of the spirit in the church come to pass jesus told the 12 and he tells all of us by extension all of us who truly love him who truly believe in his name all of us who are truly born again by grace through faith in christ to endure because as he said in 24 verse 13 the one who endures to the end will be saved Jesus continued and informed the disciples about a future time, a time of tremendous tribulation, a time of suffering and distress that will come upon the world unlike anything that has been seen up to that point and unlike anything that will ever be seen again. This will come after the Lord has gathered up his church, those with genuine faith in him out of the world on the day when, as Paul, the Apostle Paul records, the Lord Jesus himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and then we will always be with the Lord. After this event, after this time, when two men will be in a field, one will be taken and one will be left. When two women will be grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one will be left. It is after this time that the Lord will then pour out his holy wrath upon the earth, upon every single human being who chose rebellion over salvation. Upon all the unrepentant, unbelieving peoples in the world, whether you are a Jew or whether you are a Gentile. And after that time of great tribulation, after that time of tremendous anguish and distress, the Lord Jesus Christ will then return on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory to gather up his elect, to gather up everyone who turned to Jesus during that time, 
from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And then he will establish his promised millennial kingdom on the earth. And Jesus will reign from Jerusalem. And during that time, every one of the glorious promises made to Israel, made by the God of steadfast, loyal, covenant love, made by the God who means what he says and says what he means, the God whose word never fails, the God whose word never returns void, the God whose word is never left unfulfilled, he will carry out and bring to pass every single one of his glorious promises that he made to the nation of Israel. Israel in the Old Testament. But then you might ask yourself, so what does that mean for you and I as we sit here in these chairs on this day in the year 2023? Listening to a sermon series about explaining Christ's words about what is going to happen and what will come to pass in the end. What about here? What about now? What about my life? How, shall the, how then shall we live now? As we've noted throughout this discourse, Jesus has peppered into this discourse ways for us to live in the here and now. He has called on those of us who love him to endure and to persevere in our own days. He has called on us who live in the here and now to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to the nations of the world as a testimony. He has told us to pray. He has commanded us to remain alert to the wiles and the strategies and the tactics of the false Christs and false prophets who aim to lead you astray. He has told us to be aware, to be students of the times, and to live our lives accordingly as we await his return. He exhorted us, for example, in chapter 24, verse 42, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, what does that mean for us to stay awake in the light of Christ's inevitable return? That's what Christ deals with in the next three parables. He gives us three parables or three illustrations in verses 24, 45, all the way to 25, 30, to help us understand that question of how then shall we live in the light of this end times knowledge that he has just given to us. And these three parables, they're meant to be read together because they all build on each other and emphasize our duty as Christians during the days of our waiting for the return of the Lord. In the first parable, we kind of took a quick look at it, that of the faithful and wise servant who is then contrasted with a wicked servant in chapter 24, verses 45 to 51. The question who then is the faithful and wise servant is the question that is asked and answered. Who is the faithful and wise servant? Who is the faithful, dependable, trustworthy servant? And we learn from that parable that it's the one who looks for and waits with expectation for the return of the master. And while looking and waiting with expectation for the master, they obey the commands and they obey the tasks that were given to them by the master. Even as the master's return is delayed, it's taking longer than expected, the faithful servant is the one who continues to be active and about the Lord's work. And the parable will say, blessed is that servant whom the master finds active in that service that's been entrusted to him when the master returns. Blessed is the one who endures and perseveres in his service. Blessed is the one 
who keeps following, who waits and watches for the master's return. For such a servant, the parable tells us, the blessings and the rewards that will be given to them, bestowed upon them, will be most glorious and most wonderful. But for those professing servants who leave off, who ignore, who quit being faithful and watchful in the performance of the duties they profess as important, and instead join in with the wicked, and by so doing reveal that they are disobedient servants who actually, while professing to love the master, actually hate the master, one day the master will return at an unexpected day and hour, and the wicked servant will be severely punished, as the text tells us in 2451. The master will have that servant, look at it, cut in pieces and put with the hypocrites and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth that description describes the undoing and the ruin of the wicked servant the seriousness it describes the seriousness of the situation the dangerous end that awaits those who are unready unprepared and unwilling to live in light of the lord's return and so Jesus continues. He builds on that parable by telling two more parables. The one we looked at last week, which is the parable of the ten virgins, and the parable we look at this week, which is the parable of the talents. And he explains in these parables what it means to, be, to stay awake, to be prepared, to be diligently making the most of what the Lord has entrusted to us as we await his glorious return, which may or may not come in our lifetime. So the parable of the ten virgins demonstrates our need, the necessity of being a real, thorough, genuine, decided Christian. The parable of the ten virgins speaks to or calls us to be one who truly, I mean truly and really, believes in Jesus so that you will not perish but instead you will have eternal life in his name. To be one who truly, as Romans 10.9 tells us, confesses with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And as a result, is saved by grace through faith in his most excellent name. This faith, this true and unmistakable trust in Jesus Christ is symbolized in the parable of the ten virgins by the oil that lights the lamps. In Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. And so now, as we come to the parable of the talents, we are going to see Christ emphasize to the disciples and to us the need for true believers, for anyone who professes to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, to actually live for Him, to live an obedient life, to make the most of that which your Lord, which my Lord has entrusted to all of us. And how are we to live as those carrying the oil of true salvation? To summarize it in non-parable form, Paul speaks to it when he writes to the Colossian believers in chapter 3 of his letter to the Colossians. And he says this, If you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So, then how shall we live in the light of that knowledge? Paul continues, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Meaning, wage war against it. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked. Notice the past tense. In these, you once walked, meaning this was your behavioral pattern at one point in your life. But when your life is hidden with Christ in God, these are no longer the behavioral patterns of a true, genuine, decided, committed Christian. But now, he says, you must put them all away, meaning get them away from you. These must not be a part of your life. They must not be the pattern of your life. The Christian is not to have these as a general part of their life. And what are they? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Instead, as the Apostle Paul will say, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is a good summary of the parable that we are about to explain. So as you read these parables, as you read these short stories, these explanatory pictures that Jesus gives us about how a believer is supposed to live as we await the return of the Lord, we see in the parables, all three of the parables, that we must really believe in Jesus, we must really trust in Jesus, we must really and truly cherish him because he is our great joy, he is our great peace, he is our great treasure, and if that is true about us, out of our lives will flow the desire for a diligent, obedient, God-focused, God-saturated life of labor for the Lord's sake. A life that is prepared to meet him should he return today. That's what Jesus will describe as we come to the parable of the talents. The diligence that each and every one of us who claim to love him ought to be living out in our own day as we wait with eager expectation for his return. And preparedness, as we will see, is evidenced by our faithful conscientious, committed, rigorous service for Christ. And so the parable opens in verse 14, setting the scene. It will be like a man going on a journey. The it here refers to the kingdom of heaven, as we read way back in 25 verse 1. And the phrase, it will be like, indicates that this is a parable or an illustration. The idea being that this the kingdom of heaven can be compared to, it, can, it is similar to this situation. It can be described in this way, by a man going on a journey. This man on a journey abroad motif is one that Christ has referenced before. It's almost like he was preparing the disciples for the fact that he was going to depart himself. 
We read it back in chapter 21, verse 33 of Matthew's gospel, for example, when there was a parable he told where he said this, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. See, Jesus had been preparing the disciples for his upcoming departure. When he spoke the parable of the talents, when he says these words, it's not long, it's just a few days until he will be crucified and killed. When he will be buried and then later, three days later, rise from the dead. Then according to Acts, to the book of Acts, he would then after his resurrection prevent, present himself alive to the disciples after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And after these 40 days had concluded, Acts record that Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And as they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So Jesus will depart soon. But the promise is he will return on the clouds of heaven in great power and glory. However, as you read these parables, it always seems to indicate that the journey that the master takes abroad is an extended one, one that takes a little bit longer than expected. So Jesus is continuing, as we await his return, how then shall we live? Jesus was a little more clear about this particular subject in the Gospel of John when he told his disciples these things in a much clearer way. For example, he said in John 13, little children, yet a little while I am with you. Meaning, it's almost time for me to go. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And after Peter hears this, after the disciples hear this, they are like, I want to go with you. Take me with you. But Jesus is making clear to them they can't go with him yet. He is going to depart. But he continues in that same speech and tells them how then they are to live while or after he has left them. You remember it? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So I'm leaving, and here's the command I leave to you in my absence. And I hope to see that being lived out when I return. So, Jesus is going to depart. He's like the man going on a journey. And this parable, again, tells us how to live while he is away. Look at verse 14 again. It will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. So this word for call here, it's not a simple shouting of a person's name to get their attention. Steve! It's not like that. Bill! It's not that. No, this is the authoritative summons given by a master to his servants. 
And the word for servants here is the Greek word doulos, and it doesn't mean like your waiter at the restaurant you frequent. The word means slave. It describes the person whose entire life, whose purpose revolves around and focuses on and is determined by the will and the command of the master who owns them. That's what that word is speaking to. And while the concept and the brutal history of humans enslaving other humans is rightly thought of in a negative manner, this word, doulos, is still repeatedly used in Scripture over and over and over again to describe humanity either in ref- reference to our relationship to Christ or our relationship to sin. Every single one of us, the New Testament records, is either a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ or a slave to sin. The Apostle Paul will say as much, for example, in Romans, saying, or in his letter to the Romans, saying this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. And why? For what reason does Paul tell us to avoid them or counsel us to avoid divisive people? He says, for such persons do not serve Christ. The word there means they aren't enslaved to Jesus Christ. Because being enslaved to Jesus does not leave one open to creating divisions and obstacles contrary to doctrine. If there is a person like this, Paul says, they are instead enslaved to their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. That's Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. So you see, our lives either revolve around and are determined by the command and lordship of Christ, our most glorious master, who rewards his slaves with eternal life, or our lives revolve around are determined by and will receive the wages paid by the brutal tyrant of sin, whose wages are, are death and despair. So you see, this language of slavery is used throughout the New Testament. For example, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthian believers, he said this to them in 1 Corinthians 6.20. This is to the Christians. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. You see it. You were bought, you were purchased, you were paid for. A heavy price was paid for you. And now your life, what you do with your body, ought to be determined by the will of the master. And what was the buying price? If you're a Christian here today, this this verse applies to you. What was the buying price for you? It was the life of Christ. His death purchased you. His death provided, you truly believe, makes you his precious slave. So you glorify him in your body. You love your fellow believer. You put to death what is earthly in you. This is how the apostles use that term. Many of them, in the openings of their letters, describe themselves as slaves of Christ Jesus. 
Paul describes himself this way in Romans 1.1. James, the brother of Jesus, describes him this, himself this way in James 1.1. And the apostle Peter also describes himself in this way in his second letter, verse chapter 1, verse 1. And what slave owner treats their slaves like Jesus treats his? Dying to secure their ultimate liberty and freedom. What a paradox, right? What slave master goes so far in order to pluck out his slaves from the hand of sin's oppressive, ruthless, iron-fisted mastery? Only Jesus. And when you read the ESV, our particular translation, you'll see that in all of these verses, they translate the word doulos as servant. Considering the word's connotations, it's fully understandable. But the word doesn't fully capture the level of ownership that Christ or sin has over every single human being on earth. Nor does it fully appreciate the brutal mastery that sin has over those who reject Jesus and live in rebellion to him. It's a mystery, right? The seeming contradiction here is that, biblically speaking, your life as a slave of Christ is no negative. In fact, slavery to Christ is what Scripture defines as the truest and most liberating freedom there is for a human being to experience. This is what the Apostle Peter said in his first letter, writing to them, saying this, Live as people who are free. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. Did you hear it? You live free. And what does that mean? How does the free person live? As a slave to God. So you see the man in the parable, this master, about to head out on a prolonged journey, he summoned his slaves to him. And in verse 14, it tells us he entrusted to them his property. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things here. First, who does the property belong to? It belongs to the master. The master entrusts to the slaves his own property. As in, it belongs at all times to the master. Never at any time does it belong to the servant in whose hands it falls. The master puts his property in the care of the servants. And it, while they have it in their care, it always belongs to him. The servants are tasked with caring for it in his absence. In other words, while the servants might possess it, the master continues to own it. And for what reason did the master entrust his property to the servants? That they might be productive with that property. In these days, the parable speaks to the common practice of masters entrusting to their slaves property and money so that those slaves might go out trading and being productive on the master's behalf as that master goes off to engage and deal with other pressing matters. And the duty of the slave in this regard was to grow the estate and then to return to the master the profits, which in turn benefited the entire household. 
And depending on the quality of the master, many slaves actually joyfully returned to him with the profits that they proudly handed over to him. And it was only the laziest, the most boldly rebellious of slaves who would abstain from the task of growing the master's estate and working productively with his property. And so you see here, there are three servants. And the master divides and entrusts his property as he sees fit to these three servants. In verse 15, we read, To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. It's from this parable the English, that we get the English idea of a person being talented. Given talents, weighed down with talents, loaded up with talents. By that word, we mean gifted or skillful or accomplished in a particular area. That's how the the English word here has morphed over time. But the word doesn't specifically in the text speak to that. The word, uh, the Greek word itself refers to a large amount of money. But what do these talents here symbolize? What are they describing? What do they speak to? These talents speak to anything that we are entrusted, anything in our hands that we have here in this life, anything that we have been given by the master by which we might glorify and honor him, anything, whether it be your skills, your competence, your strength, your giftedness, and or your physical possessions, your assets, your occupations, your resources, your belongings, your property, your goods, and more. Your wisdom, your intellect, your vigor, your health, your houses, your money, everything you have has been entrusted to you by the master, and the master expects you to be productive with it. The talents speak to anything and everything in our lives entrusted to us by the Lord who owns it. And may we never forget that fact that while it might be in our bank account, it might be in our driveway, it belongs to Christ. And he gives it to us for productive kingdom labor during our time on this earth. The Lord has not entrusted to you and I his property so that we might bury it in the ground by using it all for ourselves. That we might bury it in the ground so that we might expand our own barns and our own bank accounts. No, he has delivered resources into your hands and into my hands for the purpose of productive work on his behalf here on earth. Again, Scripture will speak to this in non-parable form in Peter's second epistle. There we read these words in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you hear it? It's been given to us. All things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 
So you see, Peter has just told the Christians that you have been granted, you have been given, you have been entrusted with all things that pertain to life and godliness. The Lord has delivered to us the resources necessary for every one of us who professes to be a follower of Jesus to live a productive godly life as we await his return. And because God has given this to us, Peter continues, immediately continues saying, for this very reason, or because God has granted to you these things, because God has entrusted to you these things, because you've been given everything necessary to life and godliness, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, the Lord entrusts us with his property. And again, look at verse 14. He does so according to our ability. And note, just as a note before we move to that, as we work through the parable, note this. It doesn't matter how much the Lord has entrusted to each one of us. The expectation is that we are faithful with it. He gives according to his own decision. What matters to him is that whether we've been given two talents or five talents or one talent, whether we've been given a small amount or a great amount, that we honor him with what we have been given. And some of you might say to yourself, well, I don't have as much with which to honor the Lord as some of these other people do. I mean, I see the cars that are driving around here. I can't get a car like that or I can't buy a house like that. I don't have as much as anything anyone else. But know this, if that's you, that's his design and that's his will. You have what you have by the good and wise determination of the Lord because he knows you and he knows me better than you know you and better than I know me. Our duty is to be faithful with what has been entrusted to us. And the word for ability here speaks to that which you are able, with that which you have the capacity to bear. God might not be giving you all that you want because you just aren't ready for it. If you feel like you're one who's been given one talent rather than five or ten, and rather than joyfully taking that talent that's been given to you and working with it productively, you look at other people enviously and jealously thinking to yourself, if only I had that. Know this, God knows you better than you. He might either be preparing you for a larger portion by which to honor him, or he might be revealing to you your inability to handle, at least for this moment, a larger weight. If you are one who right now says things like, if I only had more, if I had more money, I'd give more money. If I had a bigger house, I'd entertain more people and show more hospitality. Or if you have any other number of if-thens, Jesus has something to say to you this morning. Back in Luke chapter 16, verse 10, Jesus said, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. 
And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. In other words, if you want to know what you would do with more money, if you want to know what you would do with a bigger house, then all you have to do is look at what you're doing with the money you have now. What you are doing with the house you have now. Because whoever is faithful with a little will be faithful with much. And whoever is unfaithful with little will be unfaithful with more. Don't fool yourself. What you are doing with what you currently have is what you will be doing if you have more of it. But back to the parable. The master of the house, after entrusting his property to these three servants, then went away. And he did so with the expectation that the servants would be productive, diligent, and effective with the resources that he provided for them. And the first two servants did just that. Look at verses 16 and 17. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also the one who had the two talents made two talents more. Did you notice the eagerness of the two here? The one who received the five, look at what it says. He went at once and traded with them. He couldn't wait to begin producing for the master. He couldn't wait to be a benefit for the master. He went immediately, desiring to do his utmost for the master, using the master's property that had been entrusted to him to their maximum advantage by doubling them. That's productivity right there. He was given five, and by trading and investing, he enlarged the estate for the Lord's sake by gaining another five. And the one who was given two went and did the same. He doubled up and made two more. And these describe, these are symbolic of the genuine believer whose aim and whose goal in this life is to be about the Lord's business, working for his glory, working for the benefit of his household. And how do we do that? By living holy, obedient lives of, that praise him. Lives of generosity, lives of mercy, lives of peace, lives of compassion, lives dedicated to the glorification of Christ, to preaching the good news, to using our resources for the benefit of your fellow brothers and sisters, to the praise and the honor and the glory of your Lord. It speaks to those whose primary fixation is obeying and living for Christ those who let their light shine before others that they might all see and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And these two servants, they are contrasted with this third servant in verse 18. He who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So here is the servant who makes poor use of the resources entrusted to him by the master who instead of obeying and living according to the master's will, actually neglects his duty to honor his master, who neglects the duty to live wisely, to invest and to multiply the master's money. Instead of being like the other two who eagerly went out and desired nothing more than to be productive for the master, this man, instead of working, instead of intentionally obeying, the master's expectation, this man went and hid his master's money into the ground. A reference to or symbolizing the selfish, indulgent, lazy, wicked, earthly-minded life. This servant made no effort to increase what he'd been given. 
He lived however he wanted with no concern for the master's property. He hid it in the dirt, forgot about it until the master's return. So then what becomes of these two groups? The one given five and two, the one's given five and two, and the one given one. Verse 19 tells us, after a long time, again, notice that word, long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. However long it took, there came a moment or a time when the master returned to settle accounts, to have the slaves account for that which he entrusted to them. What were they busy doing during his absence? Were they busy doing the master's work, honoring him, obeying him, enlarging his estate? Or were they fixated on their own lazy self-indulgence? In regards to the servants who were given five and two talents respectively, we read in verse 20, he who had received the five talents came forward bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. And also in verse 22, the one with two talents, we read, he who had two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. It's hard to capture it in words, But these two servants who had invested so wisely for their master approached him with excitement. They both say, here, I have made my five or my two talents. See, look, I have gained for you. I used your money wisely, Lord. Here, look, look, there's five more. Look, count it, count it, count it. You can hear the thrill and the delight and the joy in their voices as they approach the master to settle their accounts. As he produces five talents more, as he produces two talents more, and he approaches with a smile that stretches from ear to ear. And the master, receiving the talents from both of the slaves, responds to their labors saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The word here means bravo. Excellent job. Wonderful work. You are a beneficial, trustworthy, dependable slave. You have been faithful over a little. And this word for faithful here is in the imperfect tense, meaning it indicates that these servants lived a life of repeated, consistent decisions to live faithfully for the master. And they did this because they so highly cherished him. They had great affection for him. And so they took care of what was entrusted to them out of that great love for him. So you see, whether you are a five-talent, a two-talent, or a one-talent believer, see the ultimate reward and benefits for your faithfulness. You see four things in this verse, chapter 21, or verse 21 and 23. First, you see that you will receive a commendation from the Lord for your faithful life. See it? Well done! Not only will you receive a commendation, but you will receive his appreciation, and as unbelievable as this sounds, his acclaim. You see it? Good and faithful servant. He also will give and grant to you precious privileges. You see it? I will set you over much. And fourthly, 
He will bestow upon you the greatest of rewards. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into this condition. Enter into this state of perpetual gladness. Come and share in your master's joy. Bravo. See, our whole lives in the here and now ought to be lived so as to hear those precious words. Nothing should matter more than that being here on this day and walking to your Lord excitedly with a smile saying, Hi, look, I got a couple more talents for you. But the Lord might look at you and say, Well done. And while it might seem in this moment that living an obedient, productive Christian life is difficult and thankless. In this world, as the pressures of the world keep battering upon you, as your flesh keeps fighting against your efforts to be a diligent believer in the Lord, the diligent Christian life is never a wasted life. Your labors, your life of investment, your life of trading will not be and is not now in vain. The Lord sees, the Lord knows, and the Lord rewards your faithfulness. Now contrast that with this last servant, this man given one talent who instead of investing it and living a a productive life for the master, he promptly went and buried that talent in the ground. As we read in verses 24 and 25, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. You see what this man did? He blamed his lack of investment He blamed his lack of faithfulness on the master. He took no responsibility for his own decisions, which is an all-too-common human trait, isn't it? But as you will see, whatever excuse we might give, they hold no weight with the master. This servant tried to excuse his faithlessness, his apathy, his refusal to diligently serve the master by assigning a fault to the master. But listen, there are no excuses for our refusal to obey the master's will and expectation. There are no excuses that the Lord will say, oh, oh, that's the reason. He said in verse 24, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Meaning, I understand you to be a harsh, severe, strict, exacting, precise, and inflexible man. You were a demanding man, a difficult man. And so I knew that had I gone out and risked the talent that you entrusted to me you would have, and lost it, you would have punished me, and I didn't want to chance that. But I also know that you are one who reaps where he did not sow and gathers where he did not scatter any seed. The idea being that I could, the servant could have gone out with the resources given to him, made more, and that money wouldn't have gone into his account, but the master would have taken it. If I made any profit, you wouldn't have, you would have taken it. See, the servant here didn't see how Either of those benefited him. 
And so he simply avoided it all. And when called to settle accounts, tried to shift the blame for his faithlessness to somebody else. But you see, right? The master entrusted the servant with the resources. So the master is not reaping where he did not sow because the only reason that the servants can produce anything is because the master has given them resources by which to bring it or to produce it. So for this servant, the reward of the master, the well-done, good and faithful servant wasn't enough to inspire his diligent labor. And so the servant instead said, here, I went and hid your talent in the ground. Take what's yours. Accusing the master, blaming him for one's idleness, blaming him for one's refusal to obey, blaming him for sloth and laziness. Listen, if you are not a believer, that will not end well for you. It will not end well for anyone to blame God or to come up with excuses or reasons why you refused and rebelled against God's call and command to repent and believe the gospel. I couldn't help myself, one might say, or I was born this way, someone might say, or everyone around me simply isn't as smart as I am. They're a bunch of dummies, so I'm not going to do anything. Or everyone else was doing it, or it was too hard, or I was following my heart, or I wanted to be happy. Or those other people told me this, or I wasn't treated the way I thought I should be treated, or the church that I was going to is so judgmental, or look at all of those hypocrites over there, or does the Bible really say that? There's all sorts of excuses. You can run down a list of excuses that is miles long. You can come up with a thousand other excuses for hiding the talent in the ground, and on the day of account, there will be thousands of excuses given. And guess what? When the accounts are settled, not one of them will carry any weight. Whatever reason you might give, if you don't believe, for refusing to live a diligent, faithful life for Christ, while they might convince the people around you, while it might work among fallen human beings, the Lord will not be fooled or deceived nor will his perfect holiness make any concessions for those excuses. It's not like the Lord will say, oh, oh, the church is full of hypocrites. Oh, oh, that makes sense. All right, come on in. Oh, 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 wait, you were born like that. Oh, oh, gotcha. All right, it's all good. Come on in. None of that's going to work. All human beings are called to turn to Jesus in faith and then to reveal that true, genuine faith in, by a life of obedient, diligent obedience to his will and his word. And for those who refuse, the Lord will respond to you should you continue in that rebellion, much the same way he responds to the servant. Look at verse 26. His master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I had no seed? Wicked here means you evil, worthless, degenerate. That's a harsh word. Slothful here means you idle, lazy, bothersome, troublesome servant. And note again, note why Jesus is rebuking this servant. Is he rebuking him because he went out and committed adultery? Is he rebuking him because he went out and killed someone? Is he rebuking him because he was stealing from people? No, he's rebuking this man so harshly because the man did nothing. 
And while this wicked, lazy servant convinced himself that burying the talent was a perfectly reasonable response to the master, while he tried to excuse his decision to do so by blaming the master, notice what the master does. He turns those excuses back upon the servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I, have, where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. Meaning, if you knew these things about me, if you knew that I'm one who gathers up what is brought in by my servants, then why didn't you invest the money so that you might have something for me to gather up for the benefit of the household? If you knew this about me, if you knew this was my temperament and personality, if you knew these were my attributes, why didn't you act accordingly? Why didn't you orient your life and actions around my expectations? You should have done something, but you did nothing. Even if it was investing with the bankers, something that would have just taken the minimal amount of effort, but you couldn't even be bothered to do that. You did nothing. So... Take the talent from him, verse 28, and give it to the one who has 10. Give my property to the faithful servant. In verse 29, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So for those who believe in and live for Christ, who expend themselves, who lay it all on the line for Jesus, he says to you, to everyone who has, even more will be given. The well done, good and faithful servant that you will receive from him for a faithful life is simply awesome. More blessed than you can imagine. Of such a quality and wonder that nothing in this world, whether trial or difficulty, whether riches or comfort, can even begin to compare. A life of faith and trust in Christ, a life of genuine discipleship and industrious service is not a wasted life. Your flesh and the world and the devil, whatever else, may conspire to fool you into thinking that it is. But Jesus said, he came, he came that you would have life and life to the full, life in abundance, the most joyful life. And that perfect joy, that perfect abundant joy will one day be realized when we share in the joy of our master. To everyone who has, more will be given, is followed by the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That speaks to us in this life who don't have a share in Christ. No matter what you enjoy in this life, if you don't have Christ, if Christ is not your inheritance, if he is not the center of your life, if you are not a disciple, if you don't truly believe, nor do you care to live for his honor, in the end, this is the best life you will ever get. This is the best it will ever be for you. But in the end, and on into eternity, what little you had here and now the pleasures you had, they will all be taken from you. If that's all you have is what you have here in this world, that is a pathetic life. 
There will come a day when the master says to you right in your face as you try to excuse yourself for your rebellion, he will say to you, cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Cast him, throw him, drive out, expel that unprofitable, unworthy servant into the outer darkness, which is a word or a phrase used to describe hell. The place where those who remain wicked and lazy unto death, who deny Jesus with their lips and then die in that state, will end up by the command of Jesus, and there they will bear the wrath of God for their rebellion forever. So in closing, this parable forms both a warning to those living as wicked, unprofitable servants in the here and now, and an encouragement to the servants of Jesus living lives for him in the here and now. For the wicked and the lazy... You must turn to Jesus in faith or one day you will find yourself in the same situation as the lazy servant. We read four things there. He's condemned, you wicked and slothful servant. He's rebuked, you knew that I gather where I didn't sow. He's divested of any blessings he has. Take the talent from him. And finally, he's sent off to eternal punishment. Cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness. This is your ultimate state should you continue in unbelief. And for you, disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, smile. See your blessed future. There is coming a day when you will hear the commendation, well done. There is coming a day when you will hear him celebrate your faithfulness. You are a good and faithful servant. There is coming a day when he will grant you precious privileges. I'm going to set you over much. And there is a day coming when he will bestow upon you the greatest of all rewards. Enter into the joy of your master. I pray that you would end that you would live as one who invests what the Lord has trust, entrusted in you to you rather than bury, burying it in the ground. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the warnings that you give us in these parables. We thank you that there is yet another one coming where you warn us again. And I pray and I ask that you would open hearts, that you would regenerate, cause the new birth to come upon hardened hearts, that you would give us the strength and the capacity and the ability to see what you've entrusted to us and to use it productively for the sake of your glory. May this be the entire focus of our life. May we recognize that we are, like the apostles said, slaves to Jesus who must orient the totality of our lives around his will and command. And we ask this in his name. Amen.